I forgot, I forgot it was in there. <clears throat> Good morning, Springville. I uh, had a dream last night that I walked up these stairs and I tripped and I did a somersault and then you all applauded. Um, so <laughs> thank you. Yeah, so no, 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 don't do that. I'm just thankful that it wasn't a prophetic dream and I got up here uh, without doing that. So uh, good morning. If you're new here or we haven't met, my name is Dustin. I'm one of the pastors here. And today I have the, uh, the honor of finishing a short, short but sweet series that we've been in for the last three weeks called Reasonable Doubt. And we started the series looking specifically at the relationship between faith and doubt and specifically looking at the fact that not all doubts are created equally, Right? We have emotional doubts. We have kind of um, academic and intellectual doubts. We have personal doubts and experiences. And then last week, Ashley brought us through kind of just a really cool survey of the historical Jesus, looking specifically at who Jesus is without even needing to rely specifically on the gospel biographies, but just looking at the historical record. And so some of you, I know that was your jam, and you were very excited about that. Now today, we finished the series looking specifically, zooming in on who is one of my favorite disciples by far. I've got a couple, but it's Thomas, also known as Thomas the Doubter, Doubting Thomas. Now, if you actually know the story of Thomas, you know a little bit about him, he kind of got a bad rap. To just get a label of Doubting Thomas for one moment in his story isn't quite fair. Are you with me on that? How many of you have had bad moments? Anyone? Yeah. How many of you have changed what you think and believe over the last three years, or five, or ten, or right? Like, like Thomas has a moment where he is wrestling with something. So this should help us understand that it's really important not to take a moment in time when we see people or experience people, and then cast that as the kind of container of who they are as a person. Because there's actually much more to Thomas than just him being a doubter. I actually call him believing Thomas. There's a really interesting passage and part of the story in John 11 where Jesus is heading back to Bethany after his friend Lazarus has died. And there's a bounty on Jesus' head because the religious leaders are like, we got to get rid of this guy. He's messing up our thing. And Thomas says, and I quote, to the rest of the disciples, let's go with Jesus that we may die with him. Now that doesn't sound like a doubting Thomas. That sounds like a G, like he's ready to ride, right? Thomas is ready to go. He's ready. He's like, let's just go die with Jesus if that's our end. That's, that's Thomas. We also know from church tradition and church history from the first century that Thomas most likely went to India and brought the gospel to India. And he was martyred for his faith around the year 70 AD. Thomas and his faithfulness to the gospel and the way of Jesus is the reason why India has had the, gospels, the gospel for millennia. That doesn't sound like a doubting Thomas. But like many of us, Thomas is a believer who wrestles with real questions, wrestles with his doubts. So I see a lot of myself in Thomas. I think some of us can see a lot of ourselves in Thomas. So let's go John chapter 20 and look at a few verses and see what is going on with believing Thomas. John 20, verse 24 through 25. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin. Some of your translations might say Didymus. So I usually call him T. Diddy. You don't have to. It's just, I'm throwing it out there. Take it, okay? 
called the twin, or Didymus, you can see why he went with Thomas, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of those nails, and I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, not only is that weird, just like, I just, I want to just stick my finger in the wounds or else I will not believe, like it's a weird flex, but Thomas, you have to understand, was not with the disciples when very dead Jesus showed up as very alive Jesus. So the first time Jesus shows up and appears to the disciples, Thomas isn't with them. Now, we're not told why, and that's interesting. John is very, very intentional about the details that he includes in his gospel, but we're not told why Thomas is not with them. My guess is that there's probably a lot of disappointment. My guess is that he's probably still processing a lot of grief. And maybe there's a little bit of a disillusionment of the fact that he has followed after this Jesus, who he said, hey, let's go. If, if we die because we're with him, so be it. And all of a sudden, all of the hopes that he had put in Jesus, after hearing everything Jesus taught and seeing everything Jesus did, that that, for all intents and purposes, is gone. And what's very interesting is that he has actually sidestepped out of Christian community with his doubts. And this is often what doubt can do. Doubt will isolate us. Rather than lean towards community, to actually process some of the things that we're working through, the questions about life and, and suffering and pain and things that we're working through, often doubt can actually just push us away from community. Are you with me on that? So for whatever reason, we don't know why Thomas has withdrawn from community. The people that he's just done life with, like they've been through it. And he's withdrawn, he's pulled away. But after he comes kind of back and the disciples are there, we see his demands for faith. He's like, man, I'm just, I don't know where I'm at right now, but here's what needs to happen in order for me to have faith. Now, here's the thing. As weird as it is to be like, unless I like stick my finger in this wound, what, what Thomas is asking for isn't actually that strange or unreasonable. It, it's actually quite human. Like Thomas isn't just a doubter here, he's a seeker, Right? I actually see a lot of healthy skepticism here about his faith and about the fact that he wants good reasons for his faith. Do you know why? Because just like today, in the first century when people died, guess what? They stayed dead, right? So, so I know historically, just track with me if you guys like stats, the death rate has hovered right around 100%, like the whole time, right? So Thomas shows up and the disciples are like, listen, I don't know what to do with this, but Jesus was very dead. We were there and he's very alive and he came and spoke to us. And Thomas is like, no, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. People die and they stay dead. And that's quite a reasonable thing. Thomas is faced with something, the resurrection, that actually challenges his existing set of beliefs. The resurrection doesn't fit in the story that he already believes. And for most of us, it doesn't either. That's what makes it not normative, but miraculous. We are in the same position as Thomas. 
to actually be reasonable doubters and examine the his historical evidence of the resurrection. To actually look and be like, listen, if this actually happened, I know it doesn't, but if it did, it would change absolutely everything. And that is exactly why Jesus' resurrection is not just like a part of the faith that we tack on, like, yeah, it's like a fairy tale part that we developed afterwards, and we just kind of like tacked it on because it sounded really cool. Like, how cool would that be if we could be like, our God resurrected from the dead? But the resurrection of Jesus is quite literally the heartbeat of the entire Christian faith. And I don't have time to get into all of the historical evidence for the resurrection, but if you're here and you're skeptical about that, let me encourage you to lean into a serious examination of the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus if you haven't. Because I'll tell you right now, historians agree, non-Christian secular historians agree that we cannot come up with a reason why the Christian faith went from a bunch of country bumpkins in Rome getting their heads cut off and fed to lions to all of a sudden, three centuries later, half of the Roman Empire is not bowing a knee to Caesar because they're bowing a knee to a resurrected Jesus. So listen, track with me. Something happened. Something happened. Now, as good, reasonable skeptics, we need to move towards that and do our due diligence and come up with an explanation for that evidence. It's important to recognize, too, that Jesus, sometimes we have, C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. We're like, here we are in 2023, and we're super smart. Like, we're just killing it. We got no, no blind spots at all, because science and the enlightenment, we're, we're just we're amazing. Right? We just really are. We're very progressive. We're super enlightened. Okay? And we look back, and we're like, well, of course they would have believed the resurrection, because they're dumb. But listen. The resurrection of Jesus happened in a pluralistic culture with absolutely no room for a resurrection of a Jewish rabbi. Like, it's not like they were just like, yeah, this makes sense. Every time someone's confronted with the resurrection, they're going, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> so we got to be careful of chronological snobbery here because the central claim of the Christian faith happened in a pluralistic culture that had no room for its central claim. So why does this matter? I said I wasn't going to get into it, but I kind of did, okay? Why, did, why does this matter? Because we have two choices with the resurrection. Either Jesus rose from the dead and showed us that naturalism isn't true and that there actually is transcendent supernatural reality, or second option, he didn't. And if he didn't, then we can just go about our business and be lumps of atoms and synapses firing off energy until the sun decides to stop burning, those are our two options. Are you with me on that? The resurrection confronts our naturalistic, secular age because it's the best explanation of what happened that morning. And Thomas wants to make sure he gets this right. <laughs> so we can't just rag on him, right? Like he wants to make sure he gets this right because everything else rises or falls on whether he gets this right. And it's no different for you and me. We have to get this right. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, guess what? He was right about everything else he said. That's it. That's how it goes. Everything else he said about life and death and eternity, about sexuality and romance and marriage, and about money and wealth and success, about God and 
everything else isn't just simply helpful teaching from a Jewish rabbi, it's reality. It's truth embodied, and it's validated by the resurrection. As the Apostle Paul said, if Jesus is not raised, guess what? Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, and we are to be the most pitied of all people on the planet. So as Christians, if you are a follower of Jesus, we have to be more honest about the centrality of the resurrection. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, or you're like Tommy, it's like, I don't know, I'm, I'm exploring. Keep going. Keep exploring. Because everything rise, rises or falls on this very piece of the Christian faith. All right? Let's go. It's going to end up long. Let, I want to I zoom in on how Jesus responds to Thomas. Because this is vital. This is vital. Okay? Watch verse 26 and 27. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. We're going to come back to that. That's important. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said directly to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So just like we're not told why Thomas isn't with them when Jesus first appears, we're not told why Thomas is back. But he is. And that makes all the difference. Some of you are here week in and week out, not because you're even on board with this yet. And you're just kind of limping, but you're still here. And you're just limping towards Jesus. And you're just trying to figure out whether it's a crisis in your life or whether it's, it's intellectual doubts that you have or whether it's just personal, emotional things that you're working through, but you're still here. Hear me clearly. Keep coming. Keep coming. Keep asking. Keep going. Keep moving. Because Jesus heard Thomas. Did you hear that? Jesus heard Thomas's questions. And he went directly to him. I love that. I love that. So keep coming. Matthew 7, 7, Jesus says, those who ask, it will be given, and those who seek will find, and those who knock, the door will be opened to them. And in the Greek, it's actually a continuous verb of asking, seeking, knocking. Asking, seeking, knocking. Some of us are just asking, and we're seeking, and we're knocking, and Jesus promises to meet us there. Keep going. Keep coming. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. That was Thomas. And he's back. He's back. He's in community. He's wrestling with this stuff in community. Isolation didn't work. So now he's back in community, trying to wrestle with the questions that he has. Now, sometimes it's really important to look at like what Jesus says and how Jesus responds. But also, it's really important to see what Jesus didn't do. Because right here, Jesus didn't show up and go, Hey guys, peace be with you, I'm here. Thomas, we gotta have a chat. You gotta cut this out. All this doubt stuff, all these questions, like, I'm right here, right? Like, he doesn't shame him for his questions. He doesn't shame, he doesn't like single him out in the middle. He's like, oh, where's doubting Thomas? There you are. Let's have a chat. Like, that's not his posture at all. His posture is one of compassion. Often I see Jesus' tolerance for questions and doubts far higher than most of our churches. Uh-oh. We have to get far more comfortable 
as Jude 1 says, showing mercy to those who doubt. Right here, Jesus shows mercy to Thomas, who is doubting. He doesn't show up and go, brother, have more faith. Stop asking questions. He shows up and he meets him in them. He already knows the questions that he's asking, and he moves towards Thomas in those questions. You know what I love about it? He actually gives Thomas what he's asking for. That's pretty cool. He doesn't have to. Like, if Jesus is who he says he is, and he validates it by the resurrection, he doesn't owe Thomas anything. But he shows up and he actually meets Thomas where he is and gives him what he needs to validate and shore up his faith. Amen? That's his posture towards Thomas. So hear me. That's his posture towards you and I. That he actually is willing to call us to doubt towards him instead of seeing doubts as a way to back away from him. And Jesus pursues Thomas. He walks in. I, I love the scene. Like, I just love when Jesus shows up. He's like, peace be with you all. Where's Thomas? And he finds him and he goes right to him. And he meets him with compassion and mercy. And he gives him exactly what he needs in that season of doubt. I love that. I saw one study, um, just kind of a generational approaches to faith and, and culture right now. Because we, we have some challenges about how to communicate the faith and, and what Christians are talking about and not talking about. But it actually said that unexpressed doubt is one of the biggest barriers to faith. Unexpressed doubt. Not doubts in and of themselves, because we all have them. But unexpressed doubt in particular. That would cause us to isolate. Or find an anti-community, right? Sometimes we're more comfortable just finding an echo chamber of an anti-community. Of like, well, as long as everybody agrees with me here, I feel like I'm in, I'm, 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 I belong. But that's not community. That's not diverse thinking. That's not true community at all. That's not a communal identity. That's an echo chamber. Are you with me on that? So unexpressed doubts is the biggest barrier to faith. Not doubts themselves. We see Jesus' approach here to doubts. He's very welcoming. Not only welcoming, but he meets Thomas in it. And did you notice that it, he, he just let it hang for eight days? I love that. <laughs> he just lets it hang there for eight days. Not like immediate gratification of like, but I could have Googled it, right? Some of us haven't wrestled with our doubts for eight days, let alone eight years, let alone eight decades, because we are so used to immediate gratification, immediate hot takes, something that's tweetable, and it's like, explain that, Christians. You're like, uh, I can't even get into a dialogue with you because you've already just tweeted and left, Right? So, so I love that he just waits. It's eight days of silence for Thomas. It's eight days of doubting. It's eight days of waiting. So hear me. Don't miss this. Silence does not mean absence. Because if you notice, Jesus is present even in that because he goes directly to Thomas and meets him exactly where he is. Sometimes the wait itself, sometimes patiently, slogging through the stuff of life is actually part of the process of our faith, not something that gets in the way. Amen. Any of my old saints in the room, you know this. You just leak wisdom to us about this because you have seasons that you can look back on and you can say, that was a hard season. That was a decade of wrestling with God, right? And he doesn't meet Thomas immediately. He leaves it. He just lets it hang. A.J. Swoboda wrote a book called After Doubt. If you're looking for some good reading on this topic, I really recommend it. Here's what he says. 
Reading the saints of Christian history, we discover how many of them asked the same questions we have. Issues of theology, injustice, spiritual difficulties, doubts, and even deconstruction. What is different, though, and here it is, is that they often took an entire lifetime to wrestle with them. Our obsession with the quick fix and immediate response does not permit us to ask the big questions over a long period of time. Patient reflection is gone. So we opt for quick answers to our hard questions rather than hard answers that result from long, difficult, toilsome reflection. And he sums up and he says, we've traded the wise for the quick. You know what the quick gives us? Something that's fast but superficial. You know what wisdom gives us? Something that's deep and slow and thoughtful yet settled. Amen? That's this. And notice what Jesus does say when he finally meets Thomas in those doubts. He says, don't disbelieve, but believe. That's not the Greek word for doubt. So he's not saying, stop doubting, believe. He's saying, you're in unbelief. You're disbelieving. You are not believing. So believe. That's different than saying, hey, I have doubts, but I'm like a believer, and I'm kind of moving towards it. So just, this is why this is important. Doubt is not neutral. Doubt is always directional. Our doubts don't just kind of sit in like a neutral no man's land. Doubt is directional. We can either doubt away from God or doubt towards God. I think why this is important is because Thomas has doubted away from God. He has doubted away from Christian community and he is now in unbelief. That's different. That's different than having doubts. Jesus hears Thomas. He knows his questions. He moves towards him, and then he invites him to belief. Now, today we have this virtue in culture called, like, agnosticism, and it sounds very virtuous. It sounds very wise, and it sounds like you're a critical thinker because it's like, well, I mean, who don't, I don't know. Who knows? You don't know. I don't know, which is so unhelpful because, like, we know stuff, Right? Like, to not make a decision is to make the wrong decision. Like, are you with me on that? They say, let's just all just sit around in the ether of unknowing. Just be like, I don't know, you don't know, we don't know. Mm. Like, you're like, no, no, that's not helpful. That's not satisfying. If that's satisfying to you, then I encourage you to continue to press into some of the questions. Because that's not an answer. That's a non-answer. Non-answers drive me crazy. They drive me crazy just in my normal life, and I start getting, like, this eye twitch. That's a non-answer. Well, agnosticism, I don't know, you don't know. Now listen, that's different than being in a season of you haven't made a decision about what set of beliefs is worth giving your life to. That's different. Are you with me? That's different. But just being all virtuous about we don't know, no one knows anything. It's like that's not even intellectually honest. I get an eye twitch about that too. To make no decision is the wrong decision. And Jesus is inviting Thomas to switch from a set of beliefs that he's already holding to, to a better one. That's what's happening here. He's in a state of unbelief. This is not just an absence of faith. It's the presence of a faith in another set of beliefs. And we talked about this week one a little bit, but if you choose not to believe the Christian set of beliefs, it's because you've already trusted another set of beliefs. There's no such thing as non-belief just sitting with no beliefs. You have beliefs. 
And again, just like Thomas, the resurrection shows up and challenges his held beliefs. And then he has to make a decision. Am I going to believe? So in reality, there's no such thing as losing your faith. There's only a shift of your faith from one set of beliefs to another. And I think here, why Jesus challenges him and gives him exactly what he wants as far as evidence, not only is just because of his compassion, it is that, but I also think that Thomas is not just asking for evidence, which is reasonable, that's reasonable and necessary, but I think he's asking for absolute certainty. I think that's what he's asking for. But as long as we're human, and my three-and-a-half-pound brain is limited by what it can know, guess what? Plot twist. You cannot have absolute certainty about pretty much anything. Absolute certainty is out of reach on most things, especially most things that matter. Not to mention, all day, every day, we trust lots of things that we are not absolutely certain in. I drive across, across bridges all the time. And I'm like, I didn't test whether I can drive past. I hope I'm putting my faith in the fact that I am not plunging to my death momentarily. Like you trusted these chairs when you sat down this morning. You didn't do an empirical test on the chairs, right? Some of you are going to go eat lunch today. You are not going to test whether an employee spat in your food. Listen, not trying to ruin your lunch, but you cannot be absolutely certain that there is not saliva in your food. And it's happened before. Amen. Can I get a witness? Yeah, yeah, I'm preaching now. But here's the thing. I think Thomas is past asking for reasonable evidence for the faith, and he's wanting absolute certainty for his faith. And I would say we're chasing a phantom. Because all sets of beliefs have unanswered questions, things that we're not quite able to reconcile, and we all have to put our faith into something by some degree. And that's just intellectually honest about the human condition. Dominic Dunn wrote a book called When Faith Fails. He said this, 100% certainty about anything is impossible. Your plans aren't certain. Your next breath isn't certain. If you're waiting for unending clarity in life, chances are you'll never get married, have kids, pursue a career, or join a church. You'll just linger around the edges of possibility. Straining your eyes in search of evidence and affirmation, and chances are you'll be waiting for a very long time. And that's the clencher here. Jesus is inviting Thomas to belief, not around his doubts or his questions, but through them as he works with them. So just hear me. Some of you, maybe you've thought that the point of Christianity is certainty of knowledge, that we are absolutely certain. It's not that. Christianity is not primarily about certainty of knowledge because I think that's unattainable. Christianity is about certainty of what's worth giving our life to. Amen? That's the difference. I am absolutely certain that Jesus showed up and wrecked a 17-year-old Dustin and changed him forever and that he is worth giving my life to. Period. I, I, I am absolutely certain of that. Now, are there things in my faith that I'm still not absolutely certain of? Of course, tons of them. But the things that matter the most are the ones that I'm absolutely certain about. And that's exactly what happens to Thomas. Watch this, verse 28 and 29. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. 
And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me, because you've gotten evidence? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Most commentators say that this cry of Thomas's heart here, of my Lord and my God, is the highest praise given to Jesus in all the Gospels. And it comes from doubting Thomas. <laughs> That's got to cause us to stop and pause. That he just turned from one set of beliefs and he instead threw his entire life on Jesus, not just as a teacher or somebody that gives us helpful principles to go love our neighbors better, but he says, my Lord and my God. There is a shift in his heart posture from living independent from God to fully dependent upon God. He shifts from, I, I don't know if I should give my life to this set of beliefs, but I am certain that I, can, I am going to give my life to this set of beliefs. And he says, my Lord and my God. He is saying that you are now the master. You call the shots. You've got all of me. And Springville, that's the Christian faith. It's a personal shift in who and what we're living for who our life belongs to. So hear me, the gospel changes who our life belongs to and because of that, it changes everything about our life. And Thomas experiences it right here. And I just love, like Thomas' theology is probably really good. Like it's probably better than all of ours, right? Like he hung out with Jesus. It's pretty good. His doctrine would be banging. That's good. Sorry. His doctrine would be excellent. He saw, like he saw Jesus do what he did. He heard everything that Jesus taught. He heard about the message of sacrificial love and humble service, but it wasn't enough to change him. He needed an experience of the resurrected Jesus. The Christian message is not just a nice message about what Jesus taught. The Christian message is the gospel good news of what Jesus did in history that changed everything. That he died and rose. And right here, if you notice, Thomas's eyes are opened when he recognizes Jesus by his wounds. He recognizes Jesus by his wounds. Because it's Jesus's wounds that leads Thomas to faith. Because Jesus is God who has come into the human experience, not immune from pain and suffering, but has actually met us in it, gone through it, and then given us a reason for hope because death and pain and suffering won't get the last word. That's this. And Thomas recognizes him by his wounds. No wonder the Apostle Paul later, who had a ton of wounds, can say in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, that he is saved by grace through faith that we are saved by grace through faith, meaning it is our experience of God's unmerited love that we can't gain or lose that actually fuels the saving faith that we experience. That's this. And then he talks to you and I. Jesus is talking to us. He says, blessed are those who have not seen me, yet believe. That's us. We're not going to have the opportunity to do the weird in the wounds. (laughs) And I'm glad. Amen. I don't want that. But he talks to future generations, those who did not have the eyewitness testimony like the apostles, to actually trust 
the very historical eyewitness of the apostles. And notice, Jesus says, you don't actually need the physical eyewitness evidence yourself of the resurrection, but he gives it to Thomas anyway. And this is a challenge to us, because those of us who are doubters or in a season of skepticism, you got to consider your demands for faith. you got to be a little bit more honest about your doubts. you got to question where they come from and whether they're even fair, or whether they're even intellectually or existentially possible. Because sometimes I meet with people and it's just like, here's what would have to happen for me to believe. And I just say, brother, I can't present that to you. You're just in unbelief. Peace be with you. Like, I right? Like, you cannot be argued into the kingdom of God. You cannot fit enough into your three and a half pound brain that will resolve all the tensions of life and existence and origins and destiny. We're all in, on an even playing field and we decide what we are going to trust and what set of beliefs we're going to give our life to. Eugene Peterson talked about the longing of the human heart, the human condition. Based on this story, and here's what he says. All men and women hunger for God. The hunger is masked and misinterpreted in many ways, but it's always there. Everyone is on the verge of crying out, my Lord and my God. But the cry is drowned out by doubts or defiance, muffled by the dull ache of their routines, masked by their cozy accommodations with mediocrity. Man, we love mediocrity. Then something happens. I love this. This is your story. Some of us, we know this. It was a word or an event or a dream. And there is a push toward awareness of an incredible grace, a dazzling desire, a defiant hope, a courageous faithfulness. Springville, the most outrageous thing about the Christian faith is that God intentionally doesn't give us all the answers to life's biggest questions, and instead he decides to give us himself. That's the most outrageous thing about the Christian faith that separates it from all other human philosophies and religious ideals. That God himself would say, I mean, he could. He could just like draw, he could download it, just like upload it, two terabytes, Like he could do that. He just doesn't. You know why? Because it's better that he gave us himself. And he invites us just like Thomas. Don't disbelieve. Believe. Come with me. And then I love how John closes his gospel biography. Remember I told you John's very intentional about what he includes. In fact, the gospel of John, whose favorite gospel is the gospel of John? Yeah, I know it's like a fan favorite. John only covers 21 days in the life of Jesus. That's how intentional he is about what he includes and what he doesn't. I wouldn't have wanted to be on like his editing committee of what he cuts out and keeps in. That would have been a nightmare, right? But John's very intentional. And watch how he closes the narrative section of his biography of Jesus, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, hence the editing team. But these, these ones that I chose, the ones that I experienced and wrote down here, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Why does he close his gospel using Thomas the doubter as the climactic 
example of what it looks like to come and believe? Well, because this is not just a story about good principles and good teaching that Jesus taught us. It's a history of what Jesus did that changes everything. That's why. And he says, I wrote all this so you can have life in his name. Not so that you don't have questions anymore or you don't experience tough stuff or that you just end up with a God who's just like a sugar daddy who just like blesses you as long as you have enough faith or that you won't feel pain or go through stuff and you won't experience loss and disappointment or that you can be a good person and go to heaven. None of that. He wrote this about Jesus so that we can have life to the full now and forever. That we can have life so full that death can't touch it or steal the hope that we have. And listen, the secular age we live in doesn't have an explanation as to why anything matters if it just ends in a big delete button called death. That death itself is our shared destiny. That means, that makes everything else only temporarily meaningful. Are you with me on that? The resurrection confronts that. The gospel offers us a true and better story. One of a God who, rather than just look at death and be like, well, I'll make peace with it. It's a part of life. He actually takes it seriously as the intrusion and the disruption that he is and goes through it to offer us life to the full now and forever. And that's this. That's why John closes here. So that we can have life in his name. That we can live all of life in his name. Not that we would have a cosmic killjoy who's just like looking every time we would enjoy ourselves, like, ah, cut it out, but that we would have full joy. C.S. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven. <laughs> it's true. That's why Jesus has done what he has done. Because the thing, the, the thief of joy, death itself, is dealt with in the resurrection. And the God who is wounded invites us because he already is meeting us there. But, I'll close with this. This new life, experiencing this new life, is only for those who would give up their old life. And I think that's the moment that we get to just peek into with Thomas here. Resurrection life is for the crucified, amen? Like, like new life is for those who would actually walk away from their old life. And I think that's what's happening here with Thomas, that he's withdrawn, that he's adopted another set of beliefs, and Jesus is inviting him back, saying, no, no, come, come into that newness of life that is found in me. That, that, that this resurrection power is for those who would actually die to themselves. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm gone, I'm dead. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So today, especially as we have a moment to just sit, maybe it's not going to be for even eight minutes, let alone eight days, we have to be honest that we're all Thomas. <laughs> we're all believing, yet doubting. So what are some of yours? Maybe some of us today, we're just on the verge of crying out, my Lord and my God. 
Like maybe we're just on the verge of that. And today's the day that we get to join Thomas, knowing that we don't have everything sorted out, but we're on the verge of just crying out, my Lord and my God. Others of us, we were just in a season where we're just so distracted by the hurry of life and bills and adulting and trinkets and triviality and the leafs. Just heavy burdens. <sighs> but in all seriousness, maybe we've never even stopped long enough because we're just so distracted to consider the purpose of it all. And not like in a weird philosophical angst. Like, man, it's just all meaningless, you know? Yeah, I know. You know, like, like, but like honestly, wrestling with purpose and identity and meaning and value and love, everything. Maybe we're just so distracted. It's not that we don't care. It's just that we haven't had time to care. Maybe that's us this morning. And maybe some of us are just in a season of fear, of insecurity, of competing desires within us. We haven't yet doubted our doubts or even moved towards Jesus with them. I don't know where you are. I don't want to make space for us just for a minute. Just, just be still. Just be honest with where we are. Whether it's we're joining Thomas or we're not quite there yet. Or we, we've been Thomas and we're on the other side of that, but we're still wrestling with things. So I'm going to give us a moment to think about that. I'm going to pray for us, but then we're going to have an opportunity to actually experience the power of Jesus' wounds through communion. My prayer is that the Spirit of God would open the eyes of our heart and our mind this morning and that we would see Jesus for who he is in his wounds because he's the God who meets us in ours. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we just pause out of the busyness and the demands. Just want to create space for just a quiet. Not just ex externally, but internally, that we would quiet our thoughts, our hearts. And that wherever it is that we are feeling on the brink of just crying out, my Lord and my God, that you would meet us there. That we would be allowed to be honest about where we are, about our joys and our disappointments, about our pain, our grief, but also just flooded by all of the amazing gifts that you give us. That we would have hearts of gratitude and rejoicing because of your goodness and that you owe us nothing, and this life owes us nothing. But it's because of your goodness and your provision and your care that we can just celebrate what you have given. And I pray for eyes to see 
this morning for each of us, regardless of where we find ourselves. Or maybe we don't even know where we are on issues of faith, life, morality, purpose. That you would meet us there too. That we would see ourselves all as Thomas, believing yet doubting. And that Jesus, we would see you clearly and you'd move towards us so that we would all be able to cry out from the deepest part of who we are, my Lord and my God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.